Lord, even as we've read the psalm, we're aware of how important leadership really is. And so we pray for those who lead our nation, our province, and our city. May you strengthen and guide their decision-making processes, Lord, because we recognize those decisions impact each and every one of our lives. So we ask that you would guide them, that you would give godly counsel, that they would make good decisions that would benefit all of our nation, O oh God. I pray as well for today, Lord, that you'd open our hearts, that we would hear your voice, that in the maybe present challenge that we're experiencing, that we would begin to understand what you are doing in our lives. And I ask these things in your wonderful name, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I'm gonna have you turn to the book of Genesis chapter 22. I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but in the, in the information area of our church or one of those, either guest reception or the information area, we have a reading plan for the entire year and you can actually read through the Bible in the year. And I've done that now for, I don't know, over almost 40 years. And I've obviously read the Bible many, many times. And I tell you, every time I read it, I see something I never saw before. It's an amazing book. We're going to discover that today, and we're at the very beginning of the Bible, beginning of the year, the book of Genesis. You know, I've always been fascinated by history. I think we can learn from other people's lives. And if we don't learn from them, what happens? We tend to make the same mistakes. And in the 16th century in Great Britain, it was a very tumultuous time, very difficult time. There was a lot of political unrest and there was a conflict even in the realm of religion and the church and there was a marriage in England. There always has been a marriage between church and state and that's one of the reasons why when people moved to North America, they made this great declaration, there needs to be a separation of church and state because you don't want the state being under the control of the church nor do you want the, ch uh, the state controlling the church. You don't want either one of those things. No, those are, you know, need to be the distinction. And so in the 1600s, uh, there was a king by the name of Henry VIII. How many know of Henry VIII? He has quite a colorful history in the nation of England. Well, one of his nieces was a lady by the name of Jane Grey. She was his niece. He had a son who later became King Henry VI, or Edward VI, very sickly young person. And as we're going to see, died quite early. And he had two daughters, Mary and Elizabeth. Now, Lady Jane and Edward were exactly the same age and were the closest of friends. Both were very zealous Christians. Matter of fact, Lady Jane, her father...
inaugurated or proclaimed queen against her wishes. But later, nine days later, would, was deposed because a lot of people resisted this idea. A lot of the other nobility and people supported Mary's claim to the throne. And so she was deposed as the queen. Less than two weeks later, Mary, who was rather ambitious and a bit ruthless in her processes, actually many of the religious freedoms that had come under her father, because you have to remember King Henry VIII, he kind of divorced himself from the Catholic Church because he wanted to get married more than once, you know, all that story. Well, and Protestantism took root in England, and then Edward was very tolerable because he himself was a reformer, and so was Lady Grace. So all of these people were now on this camp, but Mary wanted to restore things as they were before her father broke away from Rome. So she decided to begin to restrict the religious freedoms in the nation and eventually Lady Jane and her husband were convicted of treason and sentenced to death. She was given an opportunity to recant her reformational faith but she resolutely said no I believe in Jesus I don't believe you have to go through anybody but Christ and him alone and so she was you know summarily basically set a time where her and her husband now were going to be killed. When it came her turn for her to die at, and she was on the scaffold, she addressed the people saying, good people, I pray you all to bear me witness that I die a true Christian woman and that I look to be saved by no other means but by the mercy of God through the, his, the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. She knelt down, said a psalm, and died at the age of 16 years old. Obedient to the faith, even unto death. Now that's a little shocking for us, you know, to have this person at this age have that kind of maturity and that kind of conviction that she was willing to obey her convictions to the point of laying down her life. And yet, in our world today, this is going to shock some of you, but there are more people losing their lives based on the same conviction in our world right now than ever before in human history. It's very interesting. Now of all the stories told of Abraham, we know him as a man of outstanding faith in God. As a matter of fact, he is the primary Old Testament example of faith. When you book, read the book of Romans, the apostle Paul calls Abraham the father of the faithful. And that you and I, I remember this years ago, I was working on a native reserve and they used to sing this crazy song, uh, Ab uh, Father Abraham had many sons. Some of you know that, just cute little children's tune, it's a crazy song. But I don't think most people understand the song. You know, we know that he had Ishmael, we know he had Isaac, we know he had a concubine, we know he had six other sons. But the reality is what that song is all about is that when you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, we become a son of Abraham. We become part of the lineage. We get tied into, you know, this realm called faith. And we become an inheritor of the faith that Abraham had. As a matter of fact, in the book of Genesis, it says that Abraham believed God and it was accredited or reckoned or accounted as righteousness, just simply because he believed what God said. There's something powerful about taking God at his word. Isn't that an amazing thing that when God says something and you and I believe it, it can literally change our entire lives. And that's the power of the good news about Jesus. Now, as I was reading this story again, it was a story of conflicting allegiances. The story of a father prepared to offer up his son, and does, and technically in his heart, offers up his son, because a greater allegiance is calling. It's a story that foreshadows and illuminates the heart of our Heavenly Father toward each one of us. And here we find the ultimate test in our relationship with God when we have to give up one thing we love the most in our world in order to demonstrate how much we truly love God. So I want to take a look today at just basically two elements of the story of obedience and how important that really is in our life. And the first one really is the test of loving obedience. Now, love, we could say is a noun, but I think love is better described as a verb. Why do I say it that way? Because a verb is an action word, right? And a verb really is 
you know, something is occurring. And so when we talk about love, we can't just use the word. A lot of times we use this word in a, in a wrong way. We just say, well, I love this, or I love that, or I love this person. But there's no real demonstration of it in our lives. It's just words that we're saying. And yet when we really understand what love is, love has to be demonstrated. Love has to be acted upon. Love is a choice. Love is tested by the choices that you and I are making. It's the very nature of marriage that we become true to one person above all others. Isn't that what we say when we are vowing in our marriage vows? That I will love this person above all other persons for the rest of my life. I am making this an exclusive relationship above every other individual. You know, it's also true in the very nature of our faith life that we say that we love God above every other person. But I want to stop there and ask the question, do we really love God more than we love ourselves? Do we really love God more than some other individual in our life? Do we really love God more than some of the activities we're engaged in, some of the pleasures we're pursuing, maybe our work, maybe it's, you know, the money we're pursuing? Do we really love God above everything else in life? And the only way that that can be demonstrated is based on how we behave. That's the true measure of us communicating to God that we actually love him. So love cannot be divorced from obedience to God's word. If you and I don't do what God says, we can't really say that we truly love God. As a matter of fact, John points this out to us in 1 John chapter um, 2, verse 3. He says, we know that we have come to know him, speaking about our relationship with God, if, if what? It's conditional. If we obey his commands. So if I'm not obeying what God's word is telling me to do, I cannot say that I love God. As a matter of fact, John goes on to say that. The man who says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. So in other words, our obedience to what God says is actually a demonstration of our love to God. Isn't that powerful? This is the only way I can demonstrate to God that I truly love him, is that I do what he asks me to do. That's my deepest expression of love to God. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. That's a pretty challenging statement. If we just stopped right there and tried to develop just that one statement, that would be powerful. I mean, the more I become Christ-like, the more I'm demonstrating I know God and I actually love God. So, now we read in a text, chapter 22, that God is going to instigate a test in Abraham's life. And so in Genesis 22 and verse 1, it says here... Uh, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Wow, that's a powerful statement. God is the one that tests him. Now, Jerry Mixum says this, the devil tempts us to bring us down, but God tests us to bring us up. In other words, God always has a purpose in what he's doing. And I don't know if we realize this, but God will test us. Now, if you're not a child of God, God won't test you. I'll tell you why. Because you won't pass. You'll keep failing. Why would he do that? He already knows you're going to fail. So the only people he's really going to test are his children. He's going to test us. And why does God test us? Well, I already think God knows what's inside of us. I think it's a tremendous learning tool for us to know where we're really at in our relationship to God. And so maybe some of the things that you're experiencing right now in your life, you don't realize it, but it's actually a test that God's allowed to come into your life. As a matter of fact, Walter Kaiser, who wrote a book called Heart Sayings in the Bible, he actually wrote the book called Heart Sayings in the Old Testament. Then, then there was about four or five other scholars who wrote the heart sayings of Jesus, the heart sayings of Paul. And so what they did is they, they made one book and called it the heart sayings in the Bible. But Walter Kaiser is an Old Testament scholar and he says this regarding this text of scripture. Because by the way, there's some difficult things about this story I'm gonna tell you right now. First of all, it's not a part of our mental culture, custom, and grid. When we read this story, we're looking at it through a lens of 21st century people looking back and making all kinds of judgments on what's happening, you know, 4,000 years ago. But I want to point out to you something. The story that you're about to hear was very culturally relevant. 
People in that culture sacrificed their children to their pagan gods. So this is very normal behavior, truly normal. See, we make a lot of judgments on people. But, you know, I'm going to just point out to us, we've had now 2,000 years of Christian history filtering through our minds, and we've developed a whole new uh, thinking about Scripture. You know, one thing that has struck me about the Bible, the Bible is a progressive revelation. God is progressively teaching humanity certain things. And we're learning as we move along this journey. So this is what he says about the story. When God is the tester, it's about knowing the heart and seeing if the person will obey his commands or not. Kaiser goes on to say, testing is the one means by which God carries out his saving purposes. Often people do not know they were tested until after the test is over. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? A lot of times we don't even realize we're being tested by God. You know, let's say somebody treats you wrongly. You're being tested. How are you going to behave in that situation? Now, we can actually, there's a lot of things we can do. The Bible says what do we should do. We need to learn to be forgiving. We need to pray for people, right? It has a whole step, a bunch of things that we can do. We can overcome evil by doing good. I mean, there's all these things, but it's actually a test. How are we going to handle that? Sometimes we just, you know, we just allow our emotions to take control of us. We say what we're going to say. We say things unthinkingly. We do a lot of verbal damage, emotional damage, mental damage, right? Come on now, that's what happens. That's a test. How are we going to handle the situation? You know, only after the person's been tested, after they've been preserved, proved, purified, disciplined, and taught, can they move beyond the situation, strong in faith, and strengthen for the more difficult tasks ahead. And I don't want to tell you some bad news, but I, I'm, I wouldn't be fair to you if I didn't tell you ahead of time. When you're younger and you're being tested, you go, oh, this is so hard. But it's actually developing you to handle bigger responsibilities later, bigger challenges later. And I'm going to say to you, as you get older, some of the greatest challenges lie before you. You don't realize that. You know, coming to grips with things like your own mortality, your own sense of health, you know, these are tests. How are you going to handle these things? You know, where, you know, life is slipping away. You don't, you don't have the same control. You just can't live with an optimism that, you know, I've got, you know, 50 years ahead of me. But when you feel like you've only got four or five years ahead of you, or maybe two years ahead of you, or maybe less than that, and you've got to think differently about life. You know, you start thinking a, a totally different frequency. I'm telling you today that some of the greatest tests that you'll ever experience will happen later on in your life. Isn't that interesting? This test, the greatest test in Abraham's life did not come when he was young. It came when he was old. Now, why am I saying that? Not to frighten you. I'm saying, please understand that everything that comes your way is designed to make you a healthier, stronger, better person. God is training you, not just for this world. Do you realize that you and I are being developed for the world to come? And God is doing all kinds of things to allow that to happen into our lives. You know, it's interesting in the book of Proverbs, we read uh, this text of scripture. It says, Proverbs 17, 3, it says, The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. Yes. Psalm 66, I have a notation by my Bible here. It says, For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. Kind of repeating the Proverbs there. You brought us into prison. Remember Joseph? God brought him to prison. God brought him into the difficulty. Brought, God brought him into the challenging moment of his life. And he laid burdens on our backs. You know, some of us want to say, you know, God's going to liberate us. Yes, God does liberate us. But before he can do that, he has to strengthen us. So that's probably why I'm preaching a sermon today on testing rather than freedom. Because I don't think you can get freedom without being tested and developed. And then you become stronger and then you have more freedom. How many know it's the opposite of what we think? See, everybody thinks freedom is lighten the load. I'm telling you, you don't physically get stronger by making things easier on your body. You get stronger by actually exerting energy against pressure. Isn't that true? How many say that's true? 
That's the way it works. And I'm telling you, that's the way it works in every dimension of our lives. Same principles at work there. It says, you let men ride over our heads. How many have ever had people ride right over top of you? And God says, I even let it happen. You know, you were in a position where people, you know, basically had authority and power over you and they'd row right over you. It says, we went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. So what is God saying? He's saying, even though I've allowed these tests to come into your lives, once you went through the tests, you came out a better person. And God is working at developing character in our lives. Well, here at verse 1 and 2, it says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him. There's a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, it's very fascinating how he develops this text. First of all, when you read the story, who's the main character? Who's the main character? Don't be shy. Abraham, thank you. I mean, God's part of the main character, but it's a dialogue between, it's, it's really about Abraham. Isn't this story about Abraham? But yet, isn't it funny, you know, if we were to write the story, we'd go, we gotta write about Isaac. Poor little Isaac. I mean, how old is he? Maybe 13, 17 years old. I mean, he probably could have took on his 100-year-old dad, wrestled them down to the ground, said, I'm not dying on that thing, and I'm out of here, right? I mean, we could have built the whole thing. You know, it's a tough thing that, you know, Isaac had to kind of, you know, find out from his dad he was about to kill him. How many think that, you know, I'm just not crawling up on top of this, you know, bunch of pieces of wood that you're going to light a fire to after you kill me? I mean, what kind of a deal is this? I'm out of here, man. I'm checking out. That's maybe your thing. It's not mine. Or maybe we would talk about Isaac as being this amazing person, you know, willing the faith of Isaac to surrender himself and lay down his life. But we don't get that picture. The author is not getting us focusing on Isaac. He's not even giving us any sort of a sensitivity towards him. As a matter of fact, immediately we're struck with the great pressure that Abraham as a father has about willingly laying down the one he loves above every other. That's the point of the story. And that's, you know, one of these Jewish scholars basically brought this to my attention. This is what he's doing to us. He's bringing us here for a reason. To give us a feeling of what it's like for the father to lay down his love and have a greater love for God than a love for his son. What a powerfully challenging thing. Do you know what's interesting? Abraham had been tested before. His faith had been tested. Remember when he was old, God says, you're going to have a son through Sarah. Neither one of you can physically have children. How many know that's kind of a big challenge? And Abraham, it says, you know, he said, well, okay, if God, you say it, I'm going to have to believe it, you know. And Sarah had a little chuckle and they named the baby laughter because they were having a problem buying it. But you know what? They trusted God anyways and said, okay, if God says what's going to happen, we're going to believe it. And sure enough, it happened. I mean, that was a big test of faith. And they passed the test. Yay. But you know what? The greater test was still coming. The greater test was the day God said to Abraham, you're not going to just have to believe for this son. Not, this is the son I promised you. This is the son I said that through this son, all of the nations are going to be blessed. And through his seed, through his posterity, through his descendants, that your descendants are going to be like the sand on the shores and like the stars in the sky. Now God says, I want you to go kill him. Now how many know that's kind of a big test of faith? That something is not jiving there. There's, there almost seems to be what we would consider a contradiction. And I've heard this so often when people talk to me, you know, pastor, there's so many contradictions in the, best, in the Bible. I'm going to use the term apparent. Because a lot of these contradictions are only apparent to us. God uses them to do something deep in our soul. I like what James Boyce says. He says, for the first time in all of Abraham's experience with God, he's confronted by a conflict between God's command and God's promise. In other words, God says me to do this, but God promised this, and they seem to be in opposition to each other. Now what? You know, earlier Abraham had been tested as for whether he'd believe that God could do the seemingly impossible task of giving Abraham and Sarah's son. That was a test but it wasn't anywhere near as hard as this one. 
This test involved a conflict apparently within the words of God himself. God had promised posterity through Isaac, but God had now also commanded Abraham to kill him. Wow. What's really happening here? Abraham is being tested on his priorities. Can Abraham maintain the right priority in this moment of his life? How many here can say there's been moments in my life I've been tested on, can I maintain the right priority? Sure. It can be, you know, we're young, we're in love, all of a sudden the person we're in love with, they become more important to us at that moment than our relationship with God. Our job, it can be all kinds of stuff gets in the road. We're all tempted down this area. This is not, shouldn't surprise us that there's this test of priority. The ultimate test is when our obedience to God is in conflict with the sense of our human desire and love. Boy, is that tough. One writer says it this way, the conflict between rival duties is often a far keener conflict and more heart-rending than the conflict between right and wrong. You know, a lot of the tests in life is not between what's right and wrong, it's between what's good and what's better. And sometimes we have to make a very heart-rending decision and go, you know what, this is going to cost me something, but I'm going to make the right choice. And my argument today for you is that if you and I obey Christ, we we obey God's word, God will bless us. God never despises what you and I are willing to give up. He sees what's going on. Matter of fact, Abraham maintained the right and proper priorities. Matter of fact, Chinese evangelist Watchman Nee once wrote, Isaiah represents, uh, in one sense, the many gifts of God's grace, right? Everything you and I have is really from God. That's called grace. It's called a gift. God gives us everything we have. God's giving you health. He's giving you life. He's giving you freedom. He's giving you your job if you have one. He's giving you, you know, whatever, the, whatever you have, God has given it to you. But you know what? Certainly children are a part of that. But before God gives them, our hands were empty. Now I want, to, I want you to do something because I think this helps us a little bit. I want you to take your hands, open them up. Would you do that? Like this. Could you just try, try doing this? Just do this. Open your hands, look at them. They're, they're, they're empty, right? And then God comes along and he starts filling them, okay? So now let's close our hands. Can we just close our hands? That's because God's filling our hands with good things. You know, the Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Everything that you've liked about your life, everything that you've cherished about your life, every enjoyment has really been God's gracious gift to you. And he's put it in your hands. But then you know what happens when we have our hands full. Look what happens. Watchman, he says, afterwards when they're full, sometimes God reaches out his hand to take ours in fellowship. Now, when your hands are like this, try, try reaching the person next to you with hands like this. Is, this. is this easy to grab somebody's hand like this? You can't do it, can you? What do you have to do in order to grab someone else's hand? you got to open it, okay? So, you know, sometimes we're hanging on to life for all we're worth. We've got our hands like this. And I want to argue today that you and I need to learn to live like this. This is a really scary position because you know what it means? God can add and subtract anytime he wants to. But when I have my hands like this, if God reaches out to me, I have a hand that's open that I can reach out and take him by the hand. That's what Watchman Nee is basically trying to say. We need to have an empty hand in order to put it into his. But when we've received his gifts and, we're, you know, and, they're, and they're in our hands and they're full, and then when God puts out his hands, we have no empty hand for him. When that happens, we need to let go. We need to let go and take hold of God himself. And he says, Isaac, you can lose an Isaac. That's a temporal thing. But to lose God, that's an eternal thing. That is an eternal thing. That's a very profound thought. Jesus himself defines for us the proper priority in the Gospels. He said, listen, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not what? It's not worthy of me. I'm reading from Matthew 10, 37. He says, anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is what? It's not worthy of me. Wow, that's strong language. What is this? This is a comparison. What is God saying? That your love for God must be so much more than your love for anyone else. I would argue today that when you love God above everyone else, you'll love everyone else better. Can I just say that one more time? You should write this thought down. 
This is an important thought. If you love God above everyone else, you will love everyone else better. Including yourself. Including yourself. And the people who think they're putting themselves above everybody else, above God, above others, you're diminishing yourself and you don't realize it. To put God first. Wow, is that ever powerful? He says, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me, is not worthy of me. In other words, it's not always easy. It is not always easy to lay down what you love because of the kingdom of God. It's hard to do sometimes. Very difficult. Now, if you've never had that moment in your life, you will come there. I guarantee you'll come there. It's a painful moment. You've got to let go. And it's so hard. And I'm I'm going to say to you today, if you'll do that, God will honor you. God will honor you. Let me tell you, big time. He will take care of you. You will be happy you made that decision in the future. You won't be happy at the moment. You'll cry a lot of tears. But God will reward you for it. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses its life for my sake will find it. So the issue is one of priority. Do you think that this this element ever hits our lives? I think it's hitting us all the time. And all the decisions we're making, who is, what is this all about? How am I living my life? Am I living my life primarily for God? Am I living it for his honor and his glory or am I living it for myself? That's a question I'm asking you today. It's a question I have to ask myself. How am I spending my time, my resources? How am I spending my emotional reserves? Where am I investing my time? How is that all being played out? Is God watching as I'm, I'm trying to live out the word of God in my life? He's watching it as you're trying to live out the word of God in your life. But I'm going to tell you a little secret about obedience. You're going to like this. Look at verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Abraham did not procrastinate. That is so important. He did not falter. He did not delay. He simply obeyed. The key to obedience is to respond immediately to what is being asked. Why? Because when you and I start weighing it out, eventually we start compromising. We start waffling, right? We water it down until there's really nothing about it that's even a sacrifice. And we'll find out a little bit about sacrifice. Obviously it says, when Abraham saw the place, it says in verse six, on the third day Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. Now, I love the story because I think what Abraham was doing was wrestling for three days in his mind. As he's walking to the place where he's going to give up his son, he's reasoning in his mind, and I'm going to make an argument for this from the New Testament. He's reasoning in his mind. He goes, okay, look, if God can bring a son about through a miracle, and now God promises that through this son that was miraculously born, all of these good things are going to come. And now God is asking me to give up this son, Therefore, God cannot tell a lie. That's one thing God can't do. Therefore, I have to think God can do another miracle. And so Abraham now becomes convinced that God is able to raise his son from the dead. How many think that's pretty profound? Nobody had ever heard of that before. That was not in the equation. What you and I know, we, see, we, we accept the resurrection as just a, you know, that people come back. We, you know, the whole culture buys into the resurrection. Even the non-believers talk about the people who die, they're going to be in the better place. See, do you know in the Old Testament, there's very little said about the resurrection. There's one text in the book of Daniel. Most Jewish people don't even know if there's life after death. How is that? See, we have a progressive revelation. So for Abraham to come to this reasoning was absolutely mind-boggling. It was profound. It was insightful. It was inspired by God for him to come to that place. And we read that in the book of Hebrews where it says, and he reasoned in his mind. And we'll get to that in a very uh, quick moment here. But let me just point out another thing. It's interesting the location where this all happened. It's in a place called Moriah. Now, Moriah is the same location 
that it only appears one other time in the Old Testament. And it appears in 2 Chronicles 3.1 where it is identified as the place where God, remember David, there's a plague and he stops the plague and David offers a sacrifice on Aruna's threshing floor. That's Mount Moriah. And what does Solomon do? He builds a temple there. And what is there today? When you go to Israel, you go on the Temple Mount, there's a dome of a rock. How many seen pictures of Jerusalem with that big gold dome? Underneath that gold dome is a rock and this is the place where Abraham had bound up his son and was willing to sacrifice him. Isn't that interesting? But how many know that's foreshadowing something even more significant? That there was a hillside right nearby that God the Father allowed humanity to bind up his son. And rather than rescue him, he allowed humanity to crucify him. And why did he do that? So that all of God's rest of creation, you and I, his sons and daughters, could be set free because of that great sacrifice. And maybe that's why in the story we don't have a focus on the son, we have a focus on the father. Because you know in the New Testament, whom do we tend to focus? We tend to focus on Jesus willingly laying down his life, even as Isaac did. But in the Old Testament we get a picture here of what, what it went through the heart of the father to do this. Let me move on to the second element of obedience and it's simply the provision of obedience. I want to just say to you that whenever you and I obey God, he rewards us. Isn't that beautiful? And you know, rewards are okay. See, we think it's a bad thing. I've read the New Testament. You know, if we, if we serve God wholeheartedly, God's going to reward us based on what we did while we were here. Did you know that? Whoever is really living the life and serving and sometimes sacrificing and all those other things, they're, they're actually building up for what's in store for them in the future. A lot of us were in the moment. This generation has been in the moment. The prior generation, prior to my generation, has been in the future. They were called the builders. They built and we benefited. All we're doing is squandering now. I don't know if you know that. As a culture, that's all we're doing. We're not building much. We're just squandering. The builders sacrifice to build. It always takes a sacrifice to build things. You need to know that. And it says here, and without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must, one, believe that he exists, and number two, what? He rewards those who diligently seek him. So I'm encouraged by God to do what? Seek him. And I know that if I get diligent in it, God says, I'll reward you for it. That should be a motivation. So don't be afraid of that kind of motivation. You know, God tells us, be motivated for the right things. See, be ambitious for the right things. I don't think ambition so much as the sin is if you're, what are you ambitious for? If you're ambitious only for yourself, yeah, that's a problem. That's selfish. But if your ambition is to help other people, that's a good ambition, Right? Would to God we had more ambitious people, you know, giving of themselves for the sake of others. That's a great ambition. And we should have people doing that. Listen to what it says in verse 7 here. Isaac spoke up. Now, Isaac's a pretty smart kid. He said, hey, Dad, listen. You know, I've noticed something. He said, I noticed we got fire and wood. He says, but where's the lamb for the, lamb, for the offering? Smart kid, right? He goes, hey, there's a missing ingredient. It's kind of an important part of the offertory here. Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now Isaac, who raises the question, but it's the response of the father that reveals something of the faith that had now arisen in the heart of Abraham. Go back to verse 5. Look what it says there. When he was about to go up the mountain, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and we will come back to you. Isn't that an amazing statement? In other words, he says, we're going up, but we're both coming down. Well, wait a minute. If you're going up with no lamb, who's going to provide this? You know, he says, God's going to provide the sacrifice. In other words, in Abraham's mind, God's going to raise my son back to life again. And this is what the book of Hebrews says in chapter 11 in another place. It says further down there. It says, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, I like the way he writes that. 
He didn't say he attempted to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. No, it says he did offer Isaac as a sacrifice because as far as God was concerned, he, it was just as if he did it because he was committed to it and God could see that. It says he had received the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Now, let's go back and say, well, wait a minute, he had Ishmael. He had other sons. Yeah, I know, but this is the son of promise. And even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. Figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Wow, what an amazing element. Look what Isaiah, Genesis 22.9 says. When they reached the place... God had told him about Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now here's where I think we have an amazing thing going on. The Bible's silent here, but I want to add something. I honestly think that Abraham talked to Isaac and said, listen, you're a miracle kid. We've told you that all along. God has told us that it's going to be through you that all these blessings are going to come. Now God's told me to offer you up and I have to do it. But I believe that if you're that miracle, God's going to provide another miracle. God's going to raise you from the dead. Isaac went along with it. I think there was a discussion there. The Bible doesn't say that. But you know, if you study their ages, you know Isaac could have run off. You know he probably could have overpowered his dad. He didn't do that. So then he reached out his hand, it says, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here am I, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. I know, Abraham, that the one love in your life greater than any other love right now, because he was in his old age. This is, you know, in a sense, in the mind of these people, this is how I'm going to live forever, is through my descendants. This son, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to lay down my dream. I'm willing to lay down everything for you, God. I love you supremely. God goes, I know it. Wow, is that ever powerful? It was this great test. You know, Ellen Galinsky in her book, The Six Stages of Parenthood, she describes the last stage as the stage of departure. You know, there's different stages. You know, when the child leaves the home, but not the heart of the parent. And the struggle between what a parent envisions for their child and what the reality is. Do you know every parent has a dream? Good parents. I know some parents are just indifferent, but good parent. They want the best for their child. Isn't that true? Good parents. You want your children to do even better than you did. You have a dream. You hope that things are going to work out for them. You always have that dream in your heart. You know, sometimes that dream, they exceed your dream. Sometimes they do better than you thought. Many times they do worse. It's crushing for a parent. Because you know what, you think about it. You raise the little whippersnapper, change their diapers, feed them, you know. And you know, if you're a good parent, you end up sacrificing on their behalf, right? You give them as much as you can. You give them every possible benefit. And then they just mess up. It's heartrending for some parents. That's what's happened. You know, I'm just pointing all that out. I'm not trying to make kids feel bad. I'm just saying, hey, this is what it's like. But you know what the ultimate struggle is? Is when you lose your child to death. We've had that experience this past week. You know, my daughter's husband, his twin, died. And I felt so bad for his mom and dad, you know. What happens if it was my child? You know. When you're old, you're getting older, you go, yeah, you know, there's only so many years. But when it's a child, there's so many more years. You just so, oh, God. Can you imagine how heartrending that is? The emotional feeling of that experience. Could you imagine what it was like for Abraham? Now I'm going to tell you a story. I've told it a couple times in the 27 and a half years I've been here. Some of you might remember it. Some of you go, I've never heard this story. So maybe you heard it from a different preacher. Back in the days of the Great Depression. By the way, this is a true story. There was a Missouri man by the name of John Griffin. And John was a controller of a great railroad bridge. You know, the guy that lowered the drawbridge down so the ships, he'd, lower, he'd raise it up so the ships could pass through on the river, the Mississippi, or the Missouri, I can't remember which, I think it was the Missouri. No, it was the Mississippi. Mississippi River. Lower the bridge. Why would he lower it so the train could come by? One day in the summer of 1937, he decided to take his eight-year-old boy, his son, Greg. Took him to work. And at noon, John was putting the bridge up to allow the ships to pass, and he was sitting on the observation deck with his son to eat lunch. 
Time sometimes kind of gets away from it. It just kind of flew back by so quickly. And suddenly he was startled by the shrieking of a train whistle in the distance. He immediately looked at his watch and noticed it's one, the 107 Memphis Express was now headed to his bridge. 400 passengers on board. It was roaring towards the raised bridge. He leaped from the observation deck, ran back to the control tower, and just before throwing the master switch, which would lower the bridge deck so the train could go by safely, there a sight caught his eye that caught his heart to leap in his chest. Greg had slipped from the observation deck and had fallen into the massive gears that operated the bridge. His left leg was now caught in the cogs of the two main gears. Desperately, John's mind whirled, trying to figure a way to rescue his son. But as soon as he thought of a possibility, he knew it couldn't be done. Again, with alarming closeness, the train whistle shrieked in the air. He could hear the clinking of the locomotive wheels over the tracks. And there was his son caught down there. And yet 400 passengers were racing towards his bridge. John knew what he had to do. He buried his head in his left arm, pushed the master switch forward. That great massive bridge lowered into place just as the Memphis Express roared across the river. When John lifted his head, face streaming tears, he looked into the, the, the windows of the passenger train as they were coming by. And there were businessmen casually reading their afternoon paper, finely dressed women in the dining car sipping coffee, children pushing long spoons into their dish of ice cream, but no one looked at the control room. And no one looked at the great gearbox. With retching agony, John Griffin cried out at that steel train, I sacrificed my son for you people. Don't you care? And I don't know about you, but sometimes the way we behave towards God, same cavalier attitude. You know, the church in North America today is more concerned about what we can get out of it rather than what God put into it. There's a very famous painting by an artist where Jesus is hanging from the cross, but it's kind of darkened in the background, and then eventually you see a face. And the artist has tried to capture the face of God the Father looking on the, on the death of his son as he's dying on the cross. A very heart-rending, agonizing moment. So the question I'm raising today, when we consider obedience, what am I really saying to us? What does it really cost you and me to follow Jesus? What have we really given up? What kind of a sacrifice have we ever had to make? It is a challenging question, isn't it? Especially when most of us, we can't get out of our own little worlds. It's all about us. It's about our problems, about our issues. And yet God wants to do such a deep work in our lives, moving us beyond ourselves. You know, I think one of the greatest things we need to be free from is from ourselves. That's one of the greatest freedoms when God can deliver you from yourself. And you can move beyond yourself and begin to see those around you. Begin to think of others. And boy, is that a very liberating moment in your life. And I'm going to have a stand as we close. I'm not going to give an invitation this morning. I'm not going to give an altar call of any kind. I want us to pray. I want us to pray this morning. And I want you to think about what was shared today. I want you to think of the agony of an Abraham with his knife raised above his only son, thinking, I'm killing my son. I have to believe God will do a miracle. Think of this man, John Griffin, who literally pulled down a lever that crushed his son to death to save other people who had, were totally indifferent to what was really happening. I want you to think of a God in heaven, the Father, who was willing to allow his son to come, his only begotten son, his beloved son, the one he had eternal fellowship with. I want you to think about that one, who was willing to give up his son. You know, we think about Jesus, but let's talk about the Father, the agony that he must have experienced in seeing his son take on the sin of the whole world so that you and I could be free. Then I want you to ask yourself the question, what does it really cost me? What, does it really, what have I really sacrificed to be a follower of Christ? Considering all the things that God has done for me, what does it really cost me? That should be something that stirs in our heart and say, Lord, 
We have a choice here today. We have a choice in this room to walk out of this room saying, am I going to keep my hands closed and hang on to all the blessings that God has poured into my life? Or am I willing to say, Lord, I'm opening my hands to you. I want to walk in fellowship with you. But Lord, if you want decide to take something out of my hand, that's your business. That's your doings. I'm not going to get angry and bitter and rage against you like most of the time we do. Get all upset with God. But I'll tell you one thing, if you've got your hands open, God can do something with your life. God can put things in it. But probably the greatest gift we need to give God is the gift of ourselves. Say, Lord, here am I. Just give you my life. In its totality. Absolute and complete surrender. Lord, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. I came to that place in my life. The emperor's to God. I'm going to give you everything I've got. I'm going to do whatever you ask me to do. You know what? You're going to be challenged on that. You don't just do that one time. You have to keep doing it. Day in, day out. And there are moments you go, I don't want to do this anymore, God. I, I want to close my hands. God, it's a choice. You know? It's like being married. You have to make a decision. I'm going to put this person above everybody else for the rest of my life. You've got to keep making that decision. And there's moments you're going to be challenged. Everyone's been challenged. Make that choice. You know? I'm putting this person above everyone else. I'm going to put my kids above myself. You know, for me as a pastor, I've got to put the congregation ahead of myself. Those are choices I have to make. And I have to make them over and over again, just like you've got to make them. So with every head bowed today, we're just going to open our hearts to God. I believe God's speaking into hearts today. And so, Lord, we cry out to you. We say, Lord, forgive us for being so cavalier and different. Lord, we've made it all about us when the reality is we want to deliver us from our greatest nemesis, and that's ourselves. Lord, I pray today that you would cleanse us, that you would help us to have a renewed obedience, that, Lord, the choice to do what you want me to do and what I want to do are different than I choose you. I go against what I want because I know what you want is always the best. It's best for me, it's best for others. Lord, I just pray today that this time of testing that will come, there will be tests this year. Lord, we don't want to walk away with failure written all over us. Lord, we want to pass the rain. We want to say yes to you. We want to make the right choices at that moment. We thank you for that. Amen. God bless you, Julie.